who's the most terrible of them all? It's Hollywood Lean. Hello and welcome to Everyone is Terrible. I'm your host, Hollywood Lean. It's my favorite day of the week. You know, today we're doing things a little bit differently. I hope you're listening to us at night because it's going to get spooky. You know, we're doing serial killers today. We're doing the Night Stalker. You know, serial killers, they scare us, they frighten us, they fascinate us, and they fascinate the public precisely because their horrific acts seem so monstrously outside of human comprehension. Breaking this down with me today is my best friend, restaurateur, and voiceover actress, Chantel Zarilla. Hi. Hey, boo. (laughs) Excited to make your podcast debut. I am. I feel very honored. But more importantly, we're diving in and discussing one of our favorite genres, which is crime and horror, because secretly we're very dark people. (laughs) Don't tell anyone. (laughs) We're dark. You know, this seems to be a subject that everyone is really hopping on the bandwagon the last couple of years. Oh, yeah. You know what? I feel like the last 10, 20 years even, you know, they're still making John Benny Ramsey documentaries after 20 years. We're obsessed with unsolved mysteries. We're obsessed with serial killers. There's always a book or a podcast or a show devoted to these crimes. But Shan, my first question is, do you think we glamorize these docu-series? Do you think we glamorize these murderers? Um, I think a little bit, yes. I think there's a certain celebrity that we attach to them. Um, you know, they're fascinating. Like you said, we it kind of takes us into a dark place within ourselves that we don't really necessarily want to share with the world. And then we get to keep it in and we get to explore it. And then we, in turn, get to become like our own detectives. And I think everyone secretly wants to be their own detective and kind of solve the crime. And we become obsessed. So I do think that the majority of the people are like that. And it's not just us, or at least I hope. Yeah, I think we want to figure out what drives these people to these acts. And I think we want to know deep down inside what makes them tick. Translation, we want to be the detective, like Shan said. Yeah, and I think also we we almost don't think of them as humans. We think of them as monsters. This time threw California into a frenzy, into a state of panic in the mid-80s. 1985, I was one years old. I'm giving out my age. I was one years old and coming home in my mother's arms from a day in Los Angeles, where we meet a man in the parking lot of my apartment complex. My mother screamed, she ran, she might've thrown something at him and she ran upstairs, freaking out only to find out he was our new neighbor. Honestly, I think everyone was scared. No one knew where he was gonna strike next. Yeah, I believe everyone was on edge in the 80s. I think the 70s and 80s was a pinnacle time for serial killers and, you know, murderers and all these horrible people. I mean, especially in California, you had the East Area Rapist, you had, you know, the Hillside Strangler. There were so many people just out there doing horrible things. And honestly, I think, you know, I look back and and I think they don't make serial killers like they used to, right? I know that sounds really horrible, but nowadays we have all this technology where we can pull out our phones and record a crime or we can, you know, find things out before they happen. You can stop a person, you catch patterns online. We were a lot more scared. We didn't know what to expect. Um, You know, this was unheard of. And it's crazy how in Los Angeles, particularly, there was so much crime happening. It could be because we're an overpopulated state. I don't know. So dangerous, especially the 80s in Los Angeles. But my parents were kind of those um, overprotective, crazy parents that always had alarm systems and locks and all that stuff. So 
Thank God nobody was affected by the Night Stalker in my family. However, interestingly enough, if you watch the Night Stalker documentary, do you remember how they touched on the Hillside Strangler? Yes. That was a crime that happened in the 70s. Um, it ended up being two killers. They were cousins and they were killing women. They were binding them, strangling them, raping them, doing all horrible things and leaving them on hillsides naked to be found. And I believe they killed about 13 girls. Well, small world, my aunt, my family, my, my mom and her sisters, they lived in that area in Glendale and Los Feliz in that area, um, La Crescenta growing up in the 70s, my aunt used to go get her car upholstered by one of the killers, Angelo, the hillside strangler. And the thank God she was not a victim. And the only reason I can think of that she would not ever be a victim is because my grandfather, her dad, was so overbearing and so protective that he went with her to every single appointment that they had. She never went alone to his, <laughs> because his garage, she worked out of his personal garage. That's scary. Can you imagine? I can't imagine because I just watched the Night Stalker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is scary stuff. Wow, that's yeah. some shit, man. Oh my God. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's get into the Night Stalker. First of all, overall thoughts, so good. Even the music was good. The B-roll was brilliant. You guys, I literally yes. was scared and was scared to go to sleep that night. You know what's fascinating is you don't even see his face. You don't even see the Night Stalker until I believe episode three or four or four to episode four. Um, to me, that is phenomenal. Like they have you on edge the whole time. You're freaked out. You're having trouble falling asleep. You want to check your doors and windows and you haven't even seen the guy. So if this is your first time even hearing about Richard Ramirez and seeing a documentary about his horrible crimes, you haven't even seen the guy. And the guy himself is pretty scary, right? He has this oh aura God. about him that is just evil. He's like a Skeletor with rotted teeth and he smells and he's disgusting. And yeah, meets his, an 80s heavy metal band. I don't know. His eyes just... are like pools of black ink. Like it's the only way yes. I can describe it. Just pure evil. It does make you want to check your doors. It does make you want to check your windows because that's exactly how he got in. He got in through sliding glass doors, the back doors of houses. People were sleeping they were beaten, raped, shot, stabbed. He gave zero fucks. He just definitely didn't even have a pattern. That was what made him such a scary serial killer in my eyes. Most of these killers have patterns and he just, he didn't have a weapon of choice. He didn't have a style of killing of choice. He just kind of went in and did whatever he felt like at the moment, just dark and twisted. He did not discriminate. He didn't care if you were old, young, male, female, child, sleeping, awake, he just kind of went for it. And if you caught him and saw him in his eyes, like it just brought out more joy for him. And this documentary does show some intense crime photos, which is not for, you know, the weak of heart. It shows the actual crime photos. Like you see the people laying yeah. bloodied, shot at. I mean, they don't show their eyes, but you see everything else, which is insane. It just makes it very real and it kind of puts things into perspective that this was not this is not a movie this was real life there was a horrible human being that went out and did these things and now it's a number one netflix documentary <laughs> yeah but you know they did a really great job because unlike most documentaries what i loved about this is it was through the perspective of the detectives that caught him yeah it didn't tell the story through the killer a lot of these tell them through the killer where they like started off with Richard Ramirez was born in Texas to an abusive father. You know, it didn't go into that. It, 
it definitely gave a voice to the victims and it gave a voice to those that were brave enough to catch them. So I truly appreciated that. And all linked back to one black Avia shoe. Footprints, never fingerprints. At first they called him the walk-in killer because he would walk into your house and kill you. Then they called him the valley intruder because he was killing everybody in the valley. Then they called him the night stalker and that was the branding that stuck. Well, it's interesting because the night stalker was originally given to the East Area Rapist in the 70s who later on became the Golden State Killer. So that name had actually been used before. This mofo would go and commit two crimes in one night. Like he would go and like murder someone. And if he didn't get satisfaction, he would move on a couple, you know, streets over and do it again. The cops were just puzzled. Different weapons. Then all of a sudden, pentagrams and satanic rituals, you know, they had no fucking clue. And this is what scared the shit out of everybody in L.A., wondering if you were going to be next because the locations were so random. Northridge, Monrovia, East L.A. Then he went to fucking San Francisco, which we're going to get into later. We will be naming someone most terrible. What I liked about the detective, Detective Gill, was that he's just like an East L.A. Mexican guy, you know, trying to come up in the force excellent work ethic but you know this was the 80s so there's something to prove as a you know mexican-american and when it came to the night soccer this was the case that he devoted his entire life to there was a point where you know like i said numerous times the city of la was scared but even his family was so scared his wife was like not only am i watching you kill yourself but at one point, his, his wife was like, I have to take the children and leave. Like, we're not coming back until this is over. How about the fact when he woke up in the middle of the night and he thought he heard someone in his house and then the guy was in his neighborhood? What about the fact that the actual killer, Ramirez, broke into the sheriff's house at one point? Yeah, I mean, it was just crazy, all of it. Um, you know, I don't blame his wife. That will just take a toll on you. And, you know, obviously... People say you can't take work home with you, but how do you not take that home with you? They just got lucky. I I honestly don't know. Something obviously stopped him. I mean, I think back to what he did to that poor girl who they interview her as an adult. He could have also easily killed her and he didn't. Thank God. So Shan mentioned a girl that was abducted. So that's where the child abductions come in. He would abduct numerous children throughout this spree of crime, but he never killed them. He would sexually assault them and then drop them off somewhere. Now, there is a victim in the film that is very predominantly featured. She's been in numerous news outlets. She's Her story has been really kind of expanded, especially since this is coming out, because she has the most vivid memory of what happened to her. She remembers everything. So she talks about how, you know, he took her back to his place and, would you know sexually molest her and she would say she would have to go to the bathroom so he would take her and put her on the sink and then she wouldn't go and he would get frustrated and take her back and this this would continue all night long until he just dropped her off at some gas station what was so scary about it was when he abducted her she said she felt awake and she just felt like it was a family member, so she just went with him. How it creepy! Familiar, I know, I know. Let's talk about the first first victim who was stalked and killed and shot in her apartment. And oh the my way God. 
played with her like he obviously made noise so she could look around the apartment and he hid behind the island of the kitchen and he made noise enough for her to come in there and like get behind the other side and she put her fingers at the top of the island and slowly looked up to see who was around the room and when she did that she was met with the barrel of the gun like execute killing at close range completely horrific and very 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 graphic but what tripped me out about that case was obviously that that was crazy that that poor woman lost her life but the roommate came home and oh my goodness she put her hands up and he shot her point blank and what are the chances that her keys her car keys in her hand Block the bullet. What are the chances that a bullet ricocheted off the set of keys in your hands? You guys, make sure if you have chunky keys, keep it that way, girl. Who cares if people say that you're a janitor (laughs) or a lesbian? You need those chunky keys. Those keys can save your life. He ran back into the house. She was so scared. She ran around through the front. So she's thinking, you know, I just got shot. He just killed someone or whatever. He's not going to go back into the house. He's going to leave. No, well, he ran back into the house. She ran around the front and they met at the front door. And like Shan said, they were both startled to see each other. But what makes her iconic, other than surviving the first bullet to the face, what makes her iconic is that she looked at him square in the eyes and said, look, you already shot me in the face once. Do you really have to do it again? And you know what he did? (laughs) He put the gun down and walked away. Not ran. He walked away like a freak. How fucking scary. Yeah. I want to talk about Judith Arnold, who was one of the people that found her parents. So Judith was very, she's like very featured in the documentary. Like one of my favorite uh, storytellers. Her story was one of the most impactful because she warned her parents She called them the night before and was like, can you please lock your windows, lock your doors? Like there's a killer. And what did her parents respond with? They were like, "Um, we're small town and we don't believe in locking doors and we go with the flow and we're from the Midwest or whatever. And they just did not pay it any attention. Well, Dorothy, this is not Kansas. Okay. This is not Kansas. The next morning, Judith found her parents. And what, oh, what, what made it even like horrible is she had her children with her. Well, it was her granddaughter's birth. It was the daughter's birthday party that day. Oh, my God. Yeah. She, she found her parents. Her children were there. Um, it, it just, it moves you. You can feel her pain. She had to like sit down her daughter and tell them like, you know, your grandma and your grandpa are dead. They have been murdered. Like all while they're in the house and the cops are coming. Like it's just, it's just insane. I can't. The people working on the case had already experienced him attempting to break into the sheriff's office or the sheriff's home. Now we move on to there's someone that works in the evidence department on this case and she is deciding to cut a little loose. She decides to go into the hot tub with her friends and, you know, they're drinking. So they're going to spend the night. They're like hanging out in the hot tub. And then all of a sudden they're like, well, it's like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning. We should probably go in the house and go to bed. So when they go to bed, the, the house guest says, Hey, 
there's someone calling your name out here. Like there's someone calling me. And she's like, no, I have the phone right here. No one's calling me. And she's like, no, someone's calling your name from outside. Screaming. So she, yeah. So she goes outside and it's her neighbor. And she's like, what's going on? And she goes, I have been beaten and raped and I'm handcuffed to the bed. So she goes over there. Obviously the police come and they put it together. The night soccer was just next door to her. You're talking about it. And I swear to you, I have chills right now because that, that part of the docuseries was super intense. First off, thank God she survived too. I mean, whew, another survivor um, to hear their story. But how terrifying. You work with the detectives that are on this case every day in the evidence room. You have a relationship with them. And now you have to call them to tell them that, hey, I am watching my, my neighbor and friend screaming from her window as she's tied to the bed begging for help. And it's your killer that you guys are after. Like, help. What, what are the chances? It was just all too close to home. And Los Angeles is a huge area. You know what I mean? This is not a small town. I mean, it's small town in some ways. But the, the chances of people knowing each other, I mean, going back to Maria Hernandez, she was, her mother was a childhood friend of one of the detectives. I mean, what? It's just mind-blowing. They found a dentist cart in the back of a vehicle one day because he would use different vehicles as well. And then one day somebody saw a description of a car that he might've been driving. And the friend was like, Oh, my friend's car was stolen and it's that car. So with the help of that, they were able to locate the car. They searched the car and found a, a dentist business card. Well, this dentist, they went to him. They found out that Richard Ramirez, the night soccer was going there they, sh they pulled all the records they could and they showed it to someone that ended up saying, oh, he's going to come back. He's got a freaking tooth that's about to blow up. Why did the police get tired of waiting for him that they decided to set up an alarm instead? He came the day after they decided to stop showing up. The alarm didn't go off and he left. You know, my my the part that really frustrated me about this is, yeah, it's the 80s, but when you have clients or or, you know, Patients as, as a dental office, do you not have address and information and social security number and a phone number for your patients? Even the car, even the car, it was left out in the hot sun. So the fingerprints, it was too late. They lost crucial yeah. evidence and time. I'm telling you, they made so many mistakes. And then when he killed someone in San Francisco, just to throw the entire state into panic, because, you know, for now, it's just the area of Los Angeles, which is, like Shan said, enormous, you know, from Monrovia all the way to East L.A. to Simi Valley. You're talking 50, 60 miles driving across this huge city. But when he went to San Francisco, it changed everything. People were so freaked out that the person I'm naming most terrible, she's my nomination, but I already know she's going to win. Shan's going to agree with me. <laughs> Diane Feinstein, the mayor <laughs> of San Francisco, she got this so bitch. freaked out that when she met with the cops and they gave her all this vital information, she held a press conference. Why did she leak privileged information about the shoe prints found at multiple scenes? Oh, I know. I know. Talk about just being not even, what's the word? Not Debbie Downer, but like the bubble burster. Like you, 
cannot give away that information. You're in the middle of a crime scene, like of a, of a, a crime investigation. You do not give away clues. Like, what is wrong with her? She goes on the news and tells everyone, yeah, we have his shoe print. This is what kind of shoe he's wearing. He doesn't ever wear those shoes again. Duh. Ditch the shoes that linked his crimes. The LAPD decided to remove officers staking out of the dentists. The trial went cold again, and Ramirez committed more murders and assaults. Yeah, and see, this is where we circle back and talk about why we all become so fascinated. Because you put yourself in these situations and you're like, if I was on this crime or if I was a detective, like, I wouldn't have let that happen. Like, hello? So it's just, it's fascinating because I think that's why we get drawn into these stories. We see those little gaps or those holes and we're like, wait a minute, how did you not catch that? Or wait a minute, like... You know, I would have done this differently. Oh, Diane, the mayor of San Francisco. I just, I could not believe that Terrible. she jeopardized the entire investigation. It was literally like going back to square one when they had only gotten to square two. Like they, they had barely made any progress. And then this just threw everything out the window. But what it comes down to was like a homeless man in East LA. How crazy was that? You know, what I love about the story ending is that yes, it was the people of Los Angeles and not just any people, but like immigrant people, like our, like Latin people who are, you know, have hearts, who have, you know, who knew what was going on, who were reading the papers, who were in tune. And they were the ones that were like, oh, hell no, you are not coming into our city and you are not doing this anymore. We're going to take action into our own hands. There was a man that. in East LA who told his daughter, like, oh, I think I know who's doing it. Like, I think... Like, I sold him a gun, yeah. and, like, I think this is the man. Well, the daughter, I'm telling you, like, everyone was so involved and so shooken up that, like, obviously people were just talking about, talking about it amongst each other, family members. So this girl called the police and was like, my dad, who is technically homeless and lives on the sidewalk in East L.A., just told me that he thinks he knows who the killer is. So, of course, they go down there. He tells them, like, yeah, like, I sold them this gun. Yeah, I mean, they did some deep digging at the Greyhound station for sure. Other than the shoe print evidence and all the, the little privileged details that the cops had been talking to the mayor about, the one thing that really wasn't released was the type of bullet or gun that was used. And the guy knew. The guy was like, it's a twenty-two. Like, I gave him that twenty-two. We have nothing else, like put his picture up, put it in the newspaper, let's run it. And that's when the citizens of Los Angeles spotted him on a bus, pulled the cord, got off the bus, called 911, told people that were driving in cars, that's him, he's on that bus. He only had like eight blocks to go to make it home and we probably would have never seen him again. But he did not make those eight blocks, Shan Go. That everyone was like, oh, hell no, you are not, you are in our city now. You are not doing this. You're not getting away with this. And everyone was like, that's him, that's him. And they all came together and they, and they got his ass. And I love that. I love that because it shows courage. It shows pride. You know, it's, it's the people of Los Angeles. Obviously, we don't want to take away credit from the detectives who worked so hard. But at the end of the day, the ones that got him were not the detectives. It was the people. And I love that. And when they caught the Night Stalker, the entire city came together. It was like a celebration. But it was also a peak of what was to come, which is like another crazy subject. And that's like 
groupies for serial killers. Like, I don't get that. Like on the way to the police station, there was a girl who stood on top of a truck and showed her tits to Richard Ramirez and flashed them. And the detective in the documentary says, I know that ain't for me. That's for you, Richard. Oh my God. You know, that is something that has always sparked an interest for me, but I just don't get it. Like Ted Bundy also had groupies. Didn't Charles Manson have groupies? Richard Ramirez had a ton of groupies. I mean, half the time these killers, while they're in jail, they end up marrying some of their groupies. I know Richard Ramirez did. He married someone. (laughs) Dude, people, people write to Chris Watts, who killed his own children. And people love him. Like, girls are like, I'll change him and I'll... It's so strange to me. That is just a mental... I don't understand that at all. Um, Yeah, I I have no words for that. I just... I know it's more common than not for these serial killers to have a following. And it could be like, you know, we, we become, as a culture or as a society, we become obsessed with things and we become obsessed with celebrities we become obsessed with films and i think that back to what i was saying that sometimes these killers get these weird celebrity statuses and people become intrigued by them or they become obsessed yeah people are obsessed with ted bundy's blue eyes and i'm just like then when we cast zach efron to play him i'm like i'm just like hollywood you're terrible (laughs) yeah So nominations for most terrible, Diane, the mayor of San Francisco, and then Hollywood, because I just can't with you guys. So the documentary ends with like, you know, everyone crying and running up to Gil because he was the one, Gil and Frank were those two Tom and Jerry kind of characters that really came together. Opposites attract, you know, a freaking... Mexican guy from East LA and then a historic homicide detective coming together and solving this crime. It felt good. At the very end, he goes to his room kind of to just release, but he starts crying and he says like, I just wish my dad would have said that I'm proud of me. And I'm like, Gil, okay. He already said it when you graduated the police academy. You need to, uh, you need to hear it again. Like out of everything, like you should be happy. You're how you're you're alive. Your wife is back. You're over here crying over. You're 50 years old and you still. You're, I don't know. I don't know. Am I terrible for this validation? No, I mean a lot of people want validation, you know, or they want some sort of, you know. He he put a lot of emotion and heart into this case, and he just wanted to feel validated. And the best part about that though, was that he didn't have to say anything to his wife. His wife knew what, what he was feeling. And she came into the room and was like, he knows he's with you and he's proud. And that was just, which is like, so on brand for Latino people. (laughs) We're like, he's with you. He's your spirit and he's your spirit guide and he's guiding you. Yes. And Netflix is like, (laughs) insert drama here. (laughs) For the reaction. <laughs> the music was so great. Like every time the episode ended, it was like a perfect transition into the next episode. It's only four episodes. They're each an yes. hour long. The Night Stalker on Netflix, you guys. I give it a 10. It was so good. You guys have to watch it. Um, there's plenty of documentaries to watch out there, but these ones were these ones were so different because it was a journey. It was it took a lot 
to find this man to solve this story as humans we love a full circle moment so when it came down to the capture of this man it was so satisfying and i think it's different from everything we watched on netflix you know like the netflix documentaries that we all watch these days the true crime ones they just fucking disturb the shit out of me like the gabriel hernandez story yeah. like i that just broke my heart the chris watts story just disgusted me I have something to tell you about that. Have you seen the Chris Watts documentary? Oh, yes. Oh, my yes. God. The, the daughters in the tanks. I can't. That is just on another level. That, that man is a piece of shit, terrible person. Do you want to hear something so creepy about that, though? In the very beginning of the documentary, what? when they're missing and he comes home and he meets the cop and they're having like a talk outside and then they go to the neighbor's house and the neighbor's talking and he's yeah. like, he's acting weird. Like, it's so strange. Right before that, Chris is in the living room of the neighbor's house and he's talking to the cop. And as he's talking about his family in the background of the TV are certain images that come on the screen when he says certain words and it freaks me the fuck out. You have to go back and watch it. I'm going to have to go back and watch that. That sounds really eerie. Okay, so the neighbor is flipping through the channels. So it's not like just like a random thing that appears. He's flipping through the channels. And as he says, my wife is pregnant, all of a sudden, there's a fetus on the television. And then the guy is just, he's flipping the channels. Yeah, my wife is pregnant. There's a fetus on the screen. Then he changes the channel again. And as he's changing the channel, he says, I just want them to come home. Like, I, I, I don't know what happened to them, but I just want them to come home. And as he says, I don't know what happened to them. The next image on the screen is a skull. It's really scary. That is just twisted. Signs. Signs. Yes, it's signs. That was disturbing. And what's different about that one is you notice such a huge difference between that crime and like Richard Ramirez type crimes, because nowadays you have the technology that cop had a a camera attached to his his body you know there's there's a lot of social media um references in that because the woman was always on her facebook so it's so super different than like the 80s killings or the 70s killings absolutely we had nothing to go by back then these days everybody puts everything on the internet it's easy to figure out stuff you know we have cameras on our front doors yeah. which caught his neighbor Chris Watts pulling the truck in backwards at 5.30 in the morning. These days, you're right. It's so different. What are, what are some of your favorite LA mm -hmm. murders before we wrap up? And we let's bring it back down to our city, which courageously fights crime and catches killers. Oh, there's so many. Um, you know, and I, and I don't want to come off like I'm a sick person because I have a favorite murder. Obviously, they're all. That's why I don't want to say favorite, but like we have, I don't know. I don't know what, what's your. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one that really intrigues me, one that has always captured my attention, one that I, just absolutely fascinates me. I find myself going down the rabbit hole and investigating and, and trying to get more facts and solve the crime is the Black Dahlia. The Black Dahlia that happened in the 1920s. The girl was 22 years old. Her body was found just randomly by a woman and her child out on the road. She was severed in half. So many creepy details. The fact that her body was drained of blood. Not any person can do that. And just the saddest part, it's still an unsolved 
mystery. It's still an unsolved crime. And that just really shook me to the core. And I just find myself always wanting to hear more about it, um, looking it up. I've listened to other podcasts that feature it. It's a, it's a very fascinating story to me. So that one really, um, you know, gets me. And then obviously I'm dying to know what yours is. Like you have to have one. And there's so many that we're obsessed with. See, I'm a Hollywood boy. Obviously my name is Hollywood Leon. Like I was, I grew up on Melrose and Wilcox until I was about seven years old. That's the heart of Hollywood. Trust me. <laughs> Down and dirty. And uh, I think like my favorite, yeah, like my favorite has to do with the Charles Manson murder, specifically that first night when Oof. he ordered his followers to go out and kill Roman Pulaski, Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant, Abigail Folger, who was the coffee heiress, you know, and she actually got away because they killed a lot of people before her and they made her watch. She actually got away. They tied her up and she got away, but she was chased down and killed in the yard, which is to me even scarier. Like Sharon Tate gets stabbed over 50 times and had a, a rope tied to her neck. And then her blood was used to write pig on the front door of this mansion. There was someone killed in the car. There was people laying in the front lawn it was just one of those murders that rocked Hollywood. And what's scary about it to me is the persuasion of evil, the people that have so much power that they can just say to someone, go kill someone tonight. And like they do it. That is scarier than anything to me. It's scarier than the stalking. It's scarier than the planning. The fact that someone is so influential and powerful that they can bring out evil in other people. That is yeah, what freaks that, me out. I mean, most. that's a whole nother level of just brainwashing and just pure evil. And you just, you nailed it the way you said it. It's just the fact that you can be such an evil, terrible person that you can turn other people to be like you and to command them to do something so wrong is just, it's, crazy like these people walk amongst us on this earth that is just there's evil around us and you just never know and that's why you just got to be careful richard ramirez spent two decades on death row i just know to die of cancer so to me he did not suffer like he made his victims suffer he did not get his in the end so I hope he's burning in hell right now. I want to thank my guest, Chantel Zarilla, for making her podcast debut, joining me, Yo. my best friend. Make sure to give me lots of feedback so I can give it to her. <laughs> Shan, uh, I love you, and thank you so much for coming on. Where can we find you? Oh, I love you. Thank you. Um, you can find me on social media. I'm on Instagram under as Chantel underscore Zaria, or you can find my personal one, Shanty Butterfly. You can find me on Twitter, all that good stuff. Thank you. I'm so honored. I had so much fun. I hope you guys like it. I did. Are you kidding me? I love talking about this stuff. We might need to do a part two if people like it. So yes, we do. We might have to do a part two. And um, obviously the podcast is a baby podcast. So we'd love your support. Click the link in my Instagram bio. I have some surprises for you. The Patreon will be launching in the next five days. So keep a lookout for that. There might even be a brand new episode of Bridgerton and Bravo TV gossip. So 
Stay tuned. I really appreciate everyone who uh, supports the podcast. Um, I want to thank all my supporters, Ashley, Elizabeth, Perla, Stephanie C., Holly, Chantel, April. Then my Venmo is in my Instagram highlights on Everyone is Terrible Pod on IG. You guys, the Patreon will feature uncut episodes, the full hour, not edited down to 30 minutes. So make sure to click on that. There's going to be lots and lots of things for you that you do not get regularly. Um, that's why you have to come and be part of the community. I'm going to be doing a Facebook group. So you guys can put your nominations for the most terrible person of the week onto the Facebook group. So if you're on Facebook, make sure to find Everyone is Terrible. That will be launching this weekend as well. I want to thank Chantel Zarilla one more time for joining me today. She's terrible. <laughs> Go follow her. I guess uh, we'll see you next week, terrible people. Bye. Bye. Who's the most terrible of them all? It's Hollywood Lee